Pharisees were fasting. And people came and they said to Jesus, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the wineskins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So let's ask, the Lord's, let's ask the Lord's blessing on the reading of the word this morning together. Eternal God, we pray your blessing upon this reading of Mark chapter 2, the 18th to the 22nd verses. And we pray that you would open to us uh, some meaning uh, from this passage that would feed our souls, strengthen our walk, and lead us to a deeper relationship with you. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, let me begin by just telling you a little story. Uh, you know, a long time ago when the kids were little, we took a trip to Maine. And at the trip to Maine, uh, Janice's family is from Maine. Uh, her brother had spent a career in the Marines. And it was his retirement party. And uh, at his retirement party, uh, the family portion of it, not when all the Marines came, that was a whole different story, but at his retirement party, where just the family was present, they laid out a very long table. And because we were in Maine, everybody that had come to the party got their own lobster. Now, I don't know if you're a seafood fan or not. Uh, I kind of enjoy seafood, but I particularly enjoy lobster. And so down this long table with the entire family and, and friends, special friends gathered, everybody got their own lobster. And it was at that event uh, that a couple of my kids decided that they were fans of eating lobster. And they enjoyed it. Now, shortly after we returned home, uh, we got some live lobsters at the grocery store or somewhere, and we brought them home to cook them for our children. Now, if you've never done that, um, you know, the lobsters are alive. If you've ever been to Red Lobster, I haven't been there in years, but they always had a tank of live lobsters where you grocery shop. They may have in their seafood department live lobsters. But you drop them into boiling water in order to cook them. I've got to tell you, that cured a couple of my kids' love for lobster. That was the end of it for them. When they saw what happened to the lobster, it was game over. Now, on the, what does that have to do with today's passage? Well, it has a great deal to do with the fact that God calls us into a living relationship with Him. Not a boiled, cooked sorry relationship, but a living relationship with him. 
On this day that we have read about in Mark chapter 2 today, it says this. It says, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Now just to be clear, that was John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees. The disciples of the Pharisees were fasting. We'll talk about that in a moment. And it said the people came to Jesus and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? The question was about fasting. If you were to go into the law, you would find out that in the law, it is written that there was one day of fasting, and that was the Day of Atonement. After the people of Israel came out of exile, the Babylonian exile, they added four more specific times of fasting in the year. Now, I've got to tell you, that would mean uh, five days in, in five times of fasting in 52 weeks in a year. That would basically mean that once every 10 weeks, there would be a period of fasting. But you know, that wasn't good enough. When the Pharisees came along, uh, they were strict. You'll recall that the, the rich young ruler that came to Jesus, or the one Pharisee that came to Jesus, said, I fast twice in a week. You'll remember that. You probably never thought about it. Well, that uh, it tells us a little bit about the Pharisees. We find that in New Testament times, the Pharisees had added... Uh, the, the gift of fasting, if you would, twice a week on top of the five that they had before. Now the question that was asked was about, the, by the disciples of the Pharisees, uh, it, it said, why do the disciples of John, that's John the Baptist, why do his disciples fast, and why do uh, the disciples of the Pharisees fast? Now, I need to tell you, Pharisees did not have disciples. But some Pharisees were also scribes, and scribes had disciples. So I want you, it doesn't matter, but it's important to note that not every Pharisee would have been a teaching Pharisee. In fact, they didn't at all have disciples. But some of these Pharisees did double time as scribes, so they had disciples. And the question is, why do John's disciples fast, and why... Do the disciples of these certain Pharisees fast, but Jesus' disciples do not fast? You see, fasting for the Pharisees was a sign of their true religiosity, their piety, if you would. Now, I don't know why John's disciples were fasting. They may have been fasting because he was holed up in jail at this time. We're not sure. But the Pharisees, for sure, their fasting was a sign of just how religious they were. It was a commentary, if you would, on their fervor uh, for their religion. And so these people wanted to know why do they fast, but Jesus' disciples don't fast. And what they're really asking is, why are you not like us? Let me just stop and say to you for a minute that you should be wary of when the status quo expects you to be just like them. Jesus was not status quo. His followers should not be status quo. And the question really is all about, are we more religious than you are? Jesus will answer this question with a couple of parables. If you're in the 19th verse, because I just did the 18th verse, you'll read this. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. 
The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Now before we jump into this parable very deeply, I just want to say to you what the point is. The point of the parable is this. There should be unbelievable, unimaginable, ecstatic joy in the presence of Jesus. Now you may recall from Sunday school that when the Pharisees fasted, they made themselves look like they were fasting. They made themselves look like they were having a rough time. There was no joy in what they were doing and they wanted you to know it. They made themselves look as if they were having a, a, a fast. Their piety, if you would, their religion, at the end of the day made them miserable. And they wanted you to see their misery. And as they asked Jesus the question, why do your disciples not fast like everybody else? You find out that they not only were miserable and they wanted you to see their misery, they wanted Jesus' disciples to be as miserable as they were. Have you ever met a person in your life who was so full of their religion that they didn't know how to have fun? I mean, somebody that doesn't know that Jesus has set them free. Miserable. Just miserable people they can be. They can tell you about the depth of their religion, right? But there's no joy in what they're about. When somebody's witness starts off with me this way, I'm a Presbyterian, or I'm a Methodist, or I'm a Sunday school teacher. Let me be sure that you understand they are telling you about their religion, but not their relationship. When somebody starts off with the line, yeah, I'm a Christian, I sing in the church choir, or I help with the church food pantry, they are usually telling you about their religion, but not their relationship. Sometimes we do those things because of our relationship with Jesus, but sometimes we can make our doing our religion and leave Jesus completely out of the picture. And usually that's because the picture is a very clear portrait of who we are that we hang high upon the wall to let the world see that we're religious people. So they come to Jesus and they say, why aren't you as miserable as we are? We're fasting. John's disciples are fasting. We're miserable. We're playing the part. Why don't you join us? And church, I've got to tell you, I'd run as fast as I could from that. If the witness is, I'm miserable. I look miserable. You could look miserable too. I'm headed out for greener pastures. And often that's what we do. We tell people about our religion because there is no relationship. We tell people about our religion because we forgot our relationship. We tell people about our religion because there never was a relationship. So Jesus says to them in this parable, I want you to know, the wedding guests cannot fast while the bridegroom's with them. As long as they have the bridegroom they can't fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away. Then they'll fast. But right now, there's a party. I want you to understand that Jesus replied to the question. Hear me, church. Stay with me on this. John's disciples fast. 
disciples of the Pharisees fast? Why don't your disciples fast? And Jesus gives this parable about the wedding guests at a wedding feast. He's starting with the picture of a wedding feast. I want you to know that a wedding feast during the time of Jesus would have been a very joyous occasion. You only need to remember that it was at the first miracle that Jesus performed that his mother came to him and said, they've run out of wine. Some of the joy is going to be missing in this party, Jesus. The party's going to shut down if you don't do something. You see, a wedding feast was happy. The food and the wine would have flowed. This wasn't an event that lasted for three hours on a Friday night church. These lasted for days on end. And Jesus says, as long as the bridegroom is here, the guests, my disciples, they can't fast. They have to party. Jesus is the bridegroom in this parable. Jesus' disciples are his guests. And while he's in the house, they must rejoice. They will not fast. They will not. It would not be appropriate for them to fast. Joy and happiness are what happen when Jesus is present. But notice what Jesus says. One day he'll be gone, and then that fasting will be appropriate action. And then he answers with another couple of parables. In the 21st verse, he says this. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. 22nd verse. Well, let me just stop and talk to you about that for a minute. I'm not going to talk long. But you, you know, I got a little, I got a little pop-up camper recently, a little little camping, a little RV, and in the front end of the RV, there's curtains, and the curtains had a little bit of a stain in them, and so I took them down, and I decided to wash them. And as I was putting them in the washer, I noticed a tag, and the tag said, "Dry, clean only." Are you with me? Dry, clean only. I said, that doesn't matter. And I threw those puppies into the washing machine, and the stain came out. I put them into the dryer on low heat, and when I went to hang them up, they hung in the windows about this far too short. <laughs> they shrunk. <laughs> they were supposed to be four foot long. They're now about 41 inches long. That's what Jesus is talking about. New cloth and old cloth. Old cloth that's been through the wash. Old cloth that's gone through the, its time. If you sew a new piece of cloth onto that to patch it up, that new piece of cloth will shrink and tear open or tear apart from the old cloth. And he goes on in the 22nd verse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, the wine will be destroyed, and so will the skins, but the new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, the, the two parables obviously bear uh, uh, an answer. They are the response of Jesus to this gang's question about his disciples not fasting. But they also form a statement 
about Judaism in general at that time, but in particular the religiosity of the gang that was asking the question. Wine, whether you know it or not, was kept in goatskins. They would take goatskins and be sure they were sewed up so, and they would put the fresh new wine into the wineskin. And that wineskin was pliable. And so when the fermentation process began to take place, that skin would expand, right? And then, then in time, they would use the wine. But you know what happened to that wine, that, that goat skin? That thing would get hard. It would dry out. And so if you chose to put more wine into that old wine skin, that old goat skin, when the fermentation process began again, that that dried up goat skin that once was pliable and soft would crack and break. That new cloth on the old, I've already talked about that, but it's the same answer Jesus is giving. The new cloth will eventually shrink and pull apart and rip the old cloth. Now just note for a minute how Jesus answered this question. A wedding, some wine, some cloth. And all of these things, listen close, the wedding, the new wine, and the new piece of cloth, they represent the new age that Jesus is bringing in. The new thing that Jesus had to offer cannot, listen close, the new age that Jesus is is bringing into pass, it cannot be held or kept to conform to the old manner of doing business. The new age of Jesus will explode the confining factors of that old religion. He will rip away from the cloth of the old garments. And there's a few points that I want to make to you in this regard. Listen close. Jesus came to save sinners, not to call a meeting of the religious. Did you hear me? Jesus came to save sinners, not to call for a meeting of the religious. He didn't come to do over and over and over again what people had already been doing for several millennia. Jesus came to bring gladness, gladness, not sadness. The dried up old wineskins have got to go. The faded shrunk cloth of the old days has to go. Jesus is in the house. The bridegroom is with us. Joy needs to flow. He needs to bring gladness and not sadness. And finally, this is very important. Jesus came to introduce something new. Not to prop up and patch up the old way. Jesus is doing something completely different. Church, I want you to know that the Christian life is not a recipe of the old and the new mixing together. Rather, Jesus, and listen, listen here, if you've been with me for the time I've been here, you're gonna hear, this is going to sound slightly familiar, but it needs to be restated. Jesus is a fulfillment of the old and the new. He, you remember his sermon, well, let's give you this illustration for a minute first. You know, if you have a seed, you can do one of two things with that seed. You can let that seed die on its own, or you can plant it in the ground and see what it produces. Are you with me? 
You, you, you could take an acorn off an acorn tree and you could smash it with a hammer and it's no good. Or you can stick it in the ground and guess what will happen? That acorn's still going to die, isn't it? Because it's going to grow into something new. Jesus came to fulfill, he came to fulfill the old in the new. And I'll tell you how you know that. The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Let me just stop. I was going to read to you what it says, but I think I can just tell you what it says. If you go to the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew, chapter 5, and as I said, for some of you, this is going to be a repeat of something you've heard before, but it's so very important. In the book of Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes through the Beatitudes one at a time, and then there's a shift in his thought. And he begins that shift in his thought this way. He says, Do not think that I have come to destroy the law and the prophets. I have come to fulfill them. Did you hear that? Let's say it again. Do not think that I have come to destroy the law and the prophets. I have come to fulfill them. And immediately he starts preaching this way. Listen, he says, You've heard that it was said by them of old. You shouldn't commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look on a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery already. Let's understand that. He referred back to the Old Testament. He referred back to one of the Ten Commandments. He referred back to the law. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy that. I came to help you see it fulfilled. And you need to understand that adultery is not the problem. Well, it's a problem. <laughs> Don't run out of here. Let's not make that a clip on Facebook. Uh, <laughs> understand that what he's saying is, I didn't come to tell you the law that says you shouldn't commit adultery. I came to tell you that it's not the breaking of the law that matters. It's the nature of your heart. It's the nature of you. He'll go on to say stuff like this. You've heard it said you shouldn't commit murder. Well, yeah, that's one of the Ten Commandments. That's in the law. Don't commit murder, right? And he'll say, but I say to you, if you even look at somebody the wrong way and want to punch them in the mouth, or if you even say to somebody, Raka, which basically means I wish you were dead, or if you get angry with somebody, you've already committed murder in your heart. So Jesus, listen, this all ties together. Jesus didn't come to destroy the law. He came to help us see it fulfilled. And it's fulfilled not because we break the law, but rather because of the nature of ourselves, which is a sinful nature. So many of us, and listen close, so many of us want to force Jesus, the new, into the old. We want to force our relationship with Christ into a bunch of do's and don'ts. And the problem with that is you'll end up with the worst of both the new and the old when you try that. Jesus has a better way. And that's going to bring me to my bottom line, church. The bottom line is this. The illusion of religion is a, steep, is a cheap substitute for real relationship. Let me say that again. The illusion of religion 
is a cheap substitute for real relationship. <clears throat> I want to tell you, church, as I take a sip. That coffee's cold. <laughs> if there's anything that this pandemic has taught your pastor, it is this. You can have stained glass windows, organs, pianos, choir robes, pulpits, candles, padded pews, carpeted floors, and pretty hymnals, all of that you want in the world, but it does not mean that we have Jesus. When Jesus is in the house, the externals are no longer important. They are in fact superficial. The evidence of real, genuine Christian faith is a true relationship with Jesus. And it will be marked by a genuine joy and not by inexpensive, cheap, dollar store junk. We need to understand that a relationship with Jesus came at a cost. It came with the cost of God's own Son. When Jesus died on the cross, He paid the highest price that had to be paid. He died for us. And we try to fill that in with stuff we get down at the five and dime. I'm going to be good. I'm going to obey the Ten Commandments. I'm going to be a nice guy to my neighbor. I'm going to do all that stuff. And it's a cheap substitute for what we really need, which is a real relationship with the living God who gave His Son to die for us, came and walked this earth and lived amongst us and shed His blood that we might be forgiven, that we might have a bridge to heaven, that the gulf that was fixed is no longer there because He built the path with His own blood that allows us to come into the very throne room of heaven and have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Church, I want to tell you, don't let yourself fall for a cheap substitute religion when you can have a relationship with a living person. You can have a relationship with the God of the ages. You've got to watch that you don't fall into the trap of thinking that being good enough is good enough. It never shall be. The illusion of religion is a cheap substitute for a real relationship. So church, listen. How do you get that? You might be asking yourself today, what do I need to do? The first thing we do is admit our own need, right? Lord, I acknowledge that I have no way, that I have no way in and of myself to come before you. My sin is too great. My sin, the filthiness of my sin, will not allow me to come into the presence of a holy God. But Lord, I recognize that your holy presence came to this earth when you sent your son in the form of a little baby. And that little baby grew up to be a full-grown man who walked the earth and talked with people and lived a life just as I do. And one day, when he could have called down the angels of heaven to set him off of that cross, he rather chose to say, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. And he took the life that he lived, the perfect, 
Son of God took the life that he had and he hung it upon a cross so that we could have the forgiveness of sins. So acknowledge your need and then ask the only one that can forgive your sins to do so. The only one that can is Jesus. I cannot absolve you of your sin. I can forgive you for something you do to me, but I cannot deal with the sin that we all carry. Only Jesus can do that. There is only one. That's why Jesus said, that's why Jesus said, one way to get to heaven. Jesus is the only way. So you come to Jesus and you say, Jesus, forgive me of my sin. And Lord, now, Give me a relationship with you. You know, I, I, this whole parking lot service, if I was where you are today, those of you that are here in the parking lot, even those of you that have joined us online this morning, you know, for my general disposition, whether you realize it or not, this would be okay. I'm actually a bit of an introvert, whether you believe that or not. I actually kind of like being a little bit in the background, whether you believe that or not. This would be okay. But I also got to tell you that Jesus wants to get into the car with you. Jesus wants to sit down with your iPad with you. Jesus wants to get to know you. He wants to say, well, if I've died for you and if I've forgiven your sin, I'd like to have a relationship. I don't want one hour a week on Sunday morning. I want every moment of every day. And so I want to be with you and get to know you and help you with your decisions and walk with you through the tough times and carry you when you can't walk yourself. I want to be your best friend. And church, I've got to tell you, there's no substitute for that. There is no parking lot that's sufficient that can take the place of having a living relationship with the God of the ages. I like some of you, but I love Jesus. He is the only one that can forgive us of our sin, who can carry us through our trials, who can carry us into eternity, my friends. Don't settle for a religion, the illusion of a religion that fails to give you the real deal, which is a relationship with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have one in heaven who's died for us. We thank you that we have one that loves us so much that he was willing to give, to leave heaven and to give his life in our stead. Lord, we praise you today that in Jesus alone there is forgiveness of sin. There's the promise of a relationship, of one who would know us better than we know ourselves, of one who would understand our sorrows and our joys, of one who would understand our weaknesses as well as give us our strength, that there is one who would advise us in times of dismay and correct us in times of bad thinking. Lord, we thank you that we have that relationship in the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you love each and every one of us listening this morning enough to say, I want to be with you. Lord, we're grateful that because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, we can have that in our lives. Father, we love you and we praise you in the good name of Jesus. Amen.